chapter 22, uh, and it's the first 19 verses. So, yeah, feel free to read along in one of the Pew Bibles, or it'll be up on the screen as well. So, will you read along with me? Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he, carried, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And the two of them went on together. As the two of them went on together, rather. Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Just say, as I invite Jeff up, I'll pray for him before he speaks to us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and that you have also given us your Holy Spirit to be able to understand it, to discern it, to feel conviction. And I just pray that tonight as Jeff, Jeff, Jeff speaks from your word, that he would speak truthfully, that he would speak your words and that we would be transformed by them. In your name we pray. Amen. is inspired by God and uh, is profitable 
to build us up and to cut us down when we need it. But uh, if there's a passage that's an important passage in Scripture for us to chew over and meditate on, it's this chapter that's just been read to us. It's uh, theologically very complex, but theologically very important. If we're going to understand this God that we've set off and who's attached himself to our lives, if we're going to understand what it is to be a covenant partner with this God, this passage is critically important. You know, as we look at this life that we've looked at over the last few weeks, over these 11 or 12 chapters, we come tonight to such a climax. Uh, We read that God tested Abraham through this episode that we're going to read about. But you would have thought he had passed that test. I know he's had his, his off days. But uh, surely the faithfulness of Abraham was seen when on first hearing the call, he left his uh, family and the civilization he'd known to go to this place that he, he didn't even know where it was as he left Haran. Surely his faith was shown then. And, and then as he inhabited that land and staked his claim as God commanded him, Surely he was faithful. As he took on the emperor of that part of the world at that time to go and retrieve his own cousin's family and the the people of Sodom, Uh, and he came back, and remember the story, he refused to take his share of the spoils. Instead, he tithed them to the figure Melchizedek as a token that he trusted God would provide. Surely he has proven his faith then. Surely he's proven his faith by God's uh, audio-visual demonstration when he took him out that night and showed him the stars and said, this is going to be your offspring. And he witnessed the promise of God in that physical form of the covenant beast being slayed as God dedicated, he, he, he made an oath of covenant to this destiny of Abraham. Surely his faith was proven a couple of chapters later when he took the sign of the covenant of circumcision upon his whole household. Surely he's proven himself trustworthy when he uh, trusted by probing the justice of Yahweh uh, when he saw that God was right to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely he was proven faithful when he uh, let God be God in that episode. And surely he was faithful when he trusted God to care for his firstborn son Ishmael as he farewelled Ishmael and Hagar, his mother, into the wilderness with no provision because he trusted God would care for them. Surely that's faith. He has trusted and and trusted and trusted and now the Lord calls this incredible test. He calls to test his loyalty Is his loyalty to obedience to this great God just as great as his commitment to his own firstborn son? There's a torn loyalty here. And yet the Lord calls him, he summons him, and he gives him this command. Abraham says, here I am, and he says, take your son. And to just highlight how much God knows this is costing him, He says, take your only son, your only son, Isaac. The son has been promised for 35 years, has finally arrived and now he's a little boy. 
or at least as a little boy, the son you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. That's not too much to ask, is it? It's an incredible request. And yet we read in the very next verse, first thing next morning, Abram packs to go. He doesn't hesitate. Let's look at that request. What did that request and that summons mean for him? We automatically, especially if you're a parent, would hone in on the incredible emotional cost to be commanded to love God more than your own children. And yet he does. He bears that emotional cost. But then there's an even greater existential trauma that this one whose whole identity, his whole life narrative, he is directed towards this goal of producing this heir and now the heir of promise is going to be destroyed, not just destroyed but destroyed by his own hand. His whole life trajectory just hits the dust at that point in existential horror. But there's an even greater trauma. It's the theological trauma that this is the good God, the God who has cared, the God who has provided, who is now behaving like a pagan God. It's the Canaanite gods, the fertility gods, who demand child sacrifice. Pagans like to manipulate their deities. They don't particularly care if the deity is honoured or obeyed. They just want power fertility, wealth and child sacrifice was part of Canaanite and Phoenician worship back then and later because the people of Israel get so off the track they introduce the same worship of Moloch and I could turn your hair tonight and I'd spare you the grotesque details of what Moloch worship entailed. It was horrific and yet this is what God seems to be asking. It seems like the God Yahweh, the God who is the creator, who calls into being what he will call into being, is out of character here terribly. And yet Abraham still trusts him. Even though it involves the destruction of his promise, the promise of God to Abraham. So the next morning he gets up and he makes preparations, no delay. He trusts this person beyond the vanishing point of his own comprehension. He still holds these two things in tension, that God promised to provide an heir, and yet God demands the destruction of the heir. He doesn't try and resolve them, it's beyond him. He just holds both truths together. And they head off at a pace that uh, is probably pretty slow. Abraham is 110 years old, give or take. I don't know how many 110 years old you've taken for a walk lately, but I'm not sure that they'd be doing a cracking pace across the wilderness. And, uh, but they're walking, and the donkey's carrying the wood most likely, and two young lads, Isaac, this party of four, or five if you count the donkey, and they uh, go out towards this place that God has revealed in the heart of Abraham And as they're heading, in verse 4, we read that out of the plains they see the mount called Moriah. This uh, is a simply, it simply means a mount of the Amorites. 
these pagan people in the southern part of the promised land. And as they arrive, he makes a decision that the young fellows who come with him will stay with the donkey and they unpack the beast. Probably Isaac takes the wood, Abraham takes the fire and he says three things in this little passage in these verses that are astonishing but full of meaning. Firstly, he says, we will worship. This is an act of worship. Worship in the ancient world primarily was about dealing with sin, appeasing transgression, and it still is. We just experienced an act of worship here tonight, which God himself instituted, lest we forget that a lamb was sacrificed for us. And the whole idea of sacrifice in the ancient world and particularly in the Old Testament is critical. You, you cannot have a Christian faith which removes the central plank of atonement. And what atonement is about is the fact that God desires terribly to bring his created order back into line with his ambition. He must punish sin. The punishment of sin is the way you restore divine order. But God, instead of punishing the sinner, provides a liturgy of sacrifice of a beast in the Old Testament. Day of Atonement, all the other offerings that are there, all involve the transferring of guilt upon the head of an alternative so that God can set the sinner free. Sin is punished by punishing the beast. And that's the nature of this. And that's what he's going to do. And you see, I think at this point, Abraham is heading up the trail with these worship instruments and he's quite content, regardless of how he feels about his moral virtue, he's quite content to accept God's verdict over his sin, that he needs to atone for sin for himself and his people. And that's what he's doing. He accepts God's verdict, God's description. You know, today we have people, even in theological establishments, that hold the whole doctrine of atonement to scorn. They cannot understand how God can require such a thing. And that's simply because they don't understand sin as God understands sin. God demands that sin be punished, that equilibrium be restored that his order comes about through the punishment of sin. And we've got to trust God's verdict when he says, you need a saviour. We are not saved by the love of God for us. I say it again. We are not saved by the fondness of God for us. We're saved because his love puts forward a substitute so he doesn't have to punish us. That's why we're saved. Second thing he says is that we shall return. Now that's an incredible statement. Now this guy, he doesn't have the Bible. He doesn't know about resurrection, let alone resuscitation. He just knows that God has got to fulfil his promise so somehow this boy that he's walking alongside, he's got to live through this though he die. Implicit in this is an embryonic belief in the same God that we believe in who resurrects the dead. 
that death does not have the last say because of who our God is. Our God has defeated death. There is no other deity that men worship that can claim that. But our God has defeated death. Abraham didn't have our Bible. He didn't have our tradition. He didn't have our schooling. He didn't have our education. But he knew that God must defeat death and he would come again. Isn't that incredible faith? That's a man who hasn't let go of the tension between the command of God that morning and the promise of God that he holds dear in his heart. He holds the two together, though he cannot resolve it. And then, as they're walking along, the boy goes, well, we've got the wood, you've got the fire, where's the lamb? Maybe this 110-year-old has forgotten a vital element of worship here. And Abraham, remember Abraham is a prophet of God. He's the first prophet of God in the line of prophets. And he says something here that rings true down through the ages for another 1,800 years. He says, God will supply a lamb for the burnt offering. God will supply the lamb for the offering, my son. Don't you worry about that. His prophetic horizon in those statements is taken up by the last of the prophets, John the Baptist, At the beginning of Christ's ministry, John, his cousin, the Baptist, the last and greatest of the prophet, according to Jesus, when he sees Jesus coming into Galilee, he stops everyone from their conversation, their idle chit-chat, and he says, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Same God, same need, same desire to punish sin, same holiness, But here is the ultimate fulfilment of the promise in Christ's time, in Christ's good time. You see, folks, this tells us a lot about and it reveals something about our faith, its adequacy or its inadequacy. If we are people who have Abram's sort of faith, then we base that faith solely upon what God has spoken, revelation. We do not place our faith about upon reason or what the typical non-believer finds acceptable. That's not the basis of faith. Abram wouldn't have got through this crisis if he sat back and he said, well, what would most pagans think about this incident? No. If you only trust those aspects in the scripture that your faith can resolve, your mind can resolve, then don't pass by Moriah because here that faith will not hold up. You need to be able to trust totally in the revelation of God, not deconstruct it, not debate it, not wonder about it, not measure it by what you can tolerate. That's irrelevant. God is his revelation. When he speaks, that ends debate. That ends deconstruction. He keeps his word. Don't ever expect to have a God that's any bigger than your own puny mind if you're trusting reason. He will not, that God will not sustain you. Well, now we come to the crisis point in this story. They arrive up at this plain, this plateau 
this sacred space. And it's amazing just to think that this 110-year-old guy scrambles around looking for boulders and he assembles himself an altar, pushes the pieces together, stacks them one on top of each other, jamming his occasional finger. Then he gets the wood and he lays it and he knows how to lay the wood so the air can get through it. And Isaac would be watching this. And at some point, he said to this lad, okay, up on the altar, son. Let's try that out. Isaac gets up, lays himself down, and his dad binds his legs and hands to the altar. What's remarkable in this little story is that we do not see or hear of any struggle by that son. Isn't that remarkable? Now, I think that tells us something about this family. And this father has passed his faith on and it's already living in his son. And this son holds the same trust as his father. And so he knows what's about to happen. And he complies. What a remarkable kid to actually go along with this scheme. And at that point, I would imagine that the father would have grabbed the head of that son so it wouldn't move, so he wouldn't make a mash of this. Grabs the knife that he's used for cutting beasts for years and decades. And he's about to take that son's life and slash that knife when from the heavens, God summons him a second time. And he says, Abraham, Abraham, don't harm the boy. And at that point, God shifts his role from being a critical observer to a present provider. And Abraham lifts his head and he sees a ram caught by the horns in a thicket. Oh, he knew God would provide the lamb. And they sacrificed that for their own sin in the presence of this God. I find it remarkable that here... All these thousands of years ago, at the very beginning of God's beginning of the end, as he turns broken humanity towards the new future, which one day all men will see, and all men will bow to this same God. And this one, he has given these people an advanced screening of the gospel. It's the gospel in 3D and through their tangible experience they understand the gospel in a way I'm I'm afraid many theologians don't. And here they understand Isaac and Abram, Abram being vested in his own son, understand what it's like being the sacrificial son, giving up your life at the behest of the father. Secondly, they both know that this God, 1,800 years later, is willing to give over his son. They know something of the heart of the Father. And then they know what salvation is, that God himself provides a substitute so we do not have to be punished. What a clear 3D picture of Calvary 
and the message and the significance of those historical events that we celebrate at Easter. But I find it just a marvellous verse. When the Lord says in verse 12, and here we have him who is mysterious coming clean about this whole event. And he says, now, the Lord says, now I know, see those words? I know now that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, Isaac, and so on. Now I find that a little bit theologically tense. Surely God knew Abraham. Surely he had spent, he knew him before he was born in his mother's womb. He knew the colour of his cloth. He knew what he was made of. He'd seen him. But he says, now I know. Isn't that remarkable? Now this is not to be taken in the sense that God is not omniscient, as some theologians would. I mean, you look right through the Old Testament. We have some texts that I plucked off the internet yesterday. I just googled, God knows the heart. I found in the space of 10 minutes or so, a hundred texts that say things like this, and you can read them there. When David is being selected, King David, Samuel, is gets told by God, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He has that intimate sort of knowledge. Jeremiah, the great prophet, 6th century prophet, says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to his deeds. God couldn't be judge if he didn't know our motives, our machinations, what we're like on the inside. And even Christ, in his earthly ministry, when he, he's, in his incarnation, he has, he has wound back his powers for the sake of living as a man. Even he didn't need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. Remarkable. I think if Jesus Christ was sitting in this church tonight, I'd feel a little uncomfortable because he knows the games I play and all of us. And it says this in Hebrews, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. You know, the Lord knows our wriggling and our, our duplicity and our complexity as we try and get away from the pointy end of obedience. But the Lord... I think what this is getting at is what some of the old divines used to call the word concurrence. That there's a real sense in which God wants to give every human being and, and this patriarch, his friend, that he needs to have his day on the field. He needs to get his own record. And the Lord is happy for that. While the Lord didn't discover anything new information-wise, the Lord wanted to experience the moment in history when this friend of God came good and followed through on his promise and now he knows. Boy does he know. He witnesses this in a tangible way close by. This concurrence of his human agent. And God has discovered something about Abraham 
which is a message for us right through this day, that a human partner can be trusted to trust. That a person just made of the same stuff as you and I can succeed in faith and can grant our God the freedom to be trusted even when we don't understand what he's doing. That is biblical faith. That's faith both par excellence, but actually that's, that's real faith. Anything else is not faith. Faith is when you let God be God, though you just be a man or a woman, a creature. You don't hold God to account for what you cannot. The ant does not dictate to the elephant. That's the nature of this faith. We understand that this man now knows that this God is, has lordship over death and he also has lordship over our reason and our ability to understand. Well, I just love the way this passage ends. And the Lord, again, we read in verse 15, the angel of the Lord, which is the Lord communicating in this sense, called to Abraham a second time from heaven. And I think Abraham and Isaac... You know, Isaac is out of, the, out of the ropes now. They've sacrificed this ram. And I think they would be very relieved. Their heart rates would be high still. And the Lord's heart rate, if you can call it that, is high as well. He calls from a second time and he says, By myself I have sworn, because God cannot swear by some arbitrary external yardstick of truthfulness. There is no such thing. He is the epitome of truthfulness. He's the yardstick of trustworthiness. And so he swears by himself. He's already made oaths before, but now by himself he is present in this oath. He says, because you've done this, you haven't withheld your son, your only son. You know, the Lord knows what this meant to Abraham. He knows the risk that faith was. I will, and he says exactly the same things that he said numerous times before, except he adds a little adverb. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. They're going to have a conquest and take over the land. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth even Q Baptist people will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The Lord, you can pick up the, the vibe, can't you? It's not saying that there was ever any doubt that he'd follow through, but if ever he was promising something to this guy, surely it's true now. He reinforces his oath to Abraham. This pulls a peon of praiseworthiness out of God's heart and he puts that on Abraham. He pulls out all stops. This one is going to be ever blessed and we are experiencing this blessing tonight. As we sing tonight, as we focus on the elements tonight, as we listen with hearts of faith tonight, it's because God kept his oath to this little wandering Aramean cattle herder. And he kept his oath through three and a half thousand years until our day today. 
It's no wonder that when the Apostle Paul writes his manifesto, Romans, and the expansion of his first letter of Galatians, he lays out the gospel and he uses, guess what? The template for explaining the gospel that Paul uses in that remarkable, incomparable book of Romans is the life of Abraham. He sets the paradigm. He sets the precedent for salvation because of his faith. And he was saved utterly the day he trusted that covenant statement. Likewise, we are saved to the uttermost. And Paul explains that through Romans 1 to 3 to 5. And then 8, and he comes to the end of his thesis in Romans 12, and he says these words, as you can see them there. Therefore, it's like the end of a thesis. When you've presented all the data and all the argument, you wind it up and you say, well, here is where I set my thesis. Paul says, I therefore, brethren or brothers, by the mercies of God, God's mercies to him and to us, I appeal to you, brothers, brethren, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship, The word could mean spiritual worship, same word, it's ambiguous. He's saying if you really want to know an appropriate, a reasonable way to worship God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now your body is not just the physical stuff, he means your whole identity, what makes you tick, your attitudes, your aspirations, your talents, your history, whatever he's worked into you, give that to God in worship. And you see the brilliance of what he's saying? He's saying, like Isaac, get up on the altar and die to anything less than serving God. That's what a life is for. That's not an exceptional Christian life. That is the Christian life. That's the way it's meant to be lived. And you see, the brilliance is, the Christian life is not a life that we ever live to deal with sin. What's on the altar? Not a substitute, but our lives. We no longer need to deal with sin. He says, put your own body now. God will accept that. Your offering of your life, it's a holy life now because of the offering of Jesus Christ who has cleansed you regardless of what you did this week, regardless of what you thought or didn't think. God has cleansed you so you can offer your life on the altar to him of worship. That's what worship is and it's entirely reasonable, is it not? If the almighty, infinite God is willing to become the Lamb of God that takes away your sin, what's a reasonable gesture in return? To say to him day by day, all that I am, I receive as a gift and I offer it back to you. You know, the Christian never does a cost-benefit analysis on obedience. The real Christian never weighs up, you know, if I do obey, that could happen, but if I don't, that could happen. That's not a Christian thought pattern. 
the Christian is so enamoured by the immensity of the grace and the gift of the Lamb of God, the only reasonable thing to do is to put their own life on the altar and give it back to God. And it can be done. You know, if this wandering Aramean can do it, without the Holy Spirit, without hardly any theological education, then certainly we can. With the Holy Spirit's prompting, with his enabling, with his love pressing the gospel into our heart every minute. We have an opportunity here in the form of the life that God has given to please the heart of God. And just as God was thrilled with the response of Abraham. And he said, surely I will bless you. When people like Claire and Jared just say yes to God to do the foolishness of living in a country that they've never seen. It can be done. What are the little things you're holding on to tonight that you think are that important that you'd give up experiencing the thrill of the voice of God in your heart. Let's bow our heads in an act of worship as we meditate on these things. In this moment, I'd invite you to simply say to the Lord Jesus Christ who is with us in person tonight, that he knows the things that hold us back from complete obedience. He knows how weak we feel. He knows the checkered nature of our record. But he also knows that we can trust his love. Oh Lord, our God, we pray that as we stand here tonight in your history, at this point in time in your great scheme to bring about the restoration of the whole creation, We thank you for enlisting us into this great work. We thank you, Lord, that that enlistment ticket came at the cost of the blood of your own son. We thank you that we do not need to fear punishment ever again. But, Lord, we come here tonight not to deal with sin, but to worship you in the service that is whatever it is you're asking us to be and to do. And in principle tonight, we simply say, Lord, Whatever you ask us to do, we shall do it and we will do it immediately because you deserve nothing better. Great God, accept our worship of our hearts, we pray. Amen.